You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here for AOA. Yesterday, of course, the markets were closed in observance of the Christmas holiday, so we're seeing the trade really start to move here today. We're going to talk about the information that's developing in the cattle trade. After a wild week last week, Chris Swift will join us in just a moment to look ahead to what could be coming for those cattle producers. And in segment two, we're going to get our weather update. John Baranek of DTN Weather will join us. A lot of folks this morning are waking up to warmer temperatures across the country. And for some people, it could be much warmer by the time we get to the end of the day today. And we are also going to check in with Todd Neely from DTN. He's a staff reporter there, covers the ag law issues. And there have been two ongoing crop protection cases, one surrounding dicamba, one surrounding chlorpiferose that made some moves in December. And Todd's going to bring us up to speed on just what the impact of that could be as we move in to 2023. But we are going to kick it off here with a look at that cattle market. We saw a tremendous rally last week, a lot of enthusiasm in for that market heading into that holiday season, that winter storm area. Woof, Chris Swift, Swift Trading Company, bring us up to speed. What happened last week and how did the technical picture for the fat cattle market change? Well, a lot of it, Mike, started off with the boxes. The boxes held relatively well when most people thought after the holiday uh, seasonal slaughter was over with, they'd start to decline a little bit. But we saw really good, strong boxes at the end of the week. We knew that the winter storm was coming, so we put a little premium onto the futures market for it. And this morning, we're not taking too much of that premium off. The fat cattle are still trading a little bit higher this morning. The feeder cattle just a tad bit softer, but probably some of that due to the little bit higher corn market this morning. That is a good point. We are seeing some rallies happening over in the grain side of the market. Chris, on the fat cattle side, the slaughter schedule this past week, of course, we were heading into Christmas. I imagine that's a time we're seeing the, the slaughter slow down anyway, coupled with the winter storm. Do we have a guess of what slaughter looked like last week yet? Um, no, not yet, but it, we know that it was abbreviated. What we're looking forward to now is to seeing with the increased packing capacity and the lower numbers, how is the packer going to um, set that pace to be able to keep margins as wide as he possibly can and yet still allow enough beef to come through for the consumer? Well, and we got an update on some of the total inventory numbers on Friday, just before Christmas, USDA released their cattle on feed reports. Chris, and my first blush was that it seemed to be in line with the trade was expecting. How did you interpret Friday's data? It was pretty neutral. What we noticed is that um, although year-over-year levels had been decreasing for several months, we noticed that month-over-month had not. So this last month, between October and November, they stayed the same. So I think that's kind of a clue that maybe the um, need to get rid of heifers, the increased heifer placement, is starting to slow just a little bit. And we're really anxious to see when or if the cow slaughter slows down just a little bit, if that begins to expose how, fewer, uh, how much fewer the uh, fed cattle market is on, um, on hand on total numbers. And of course, the other component of that is marketings. And Chris, the month of November saw what appears to me to be a fairly stupendous amount of marketings. Can you give us some of the details and how does it compare to prior months of November? Um, it was good. It was uh, What we really noticed was the increase of marketings in the uh, stockers and feeder cattle. Uh, we thought that there would be a big decline in that, and although there was a small decline in it, we thought it'd be much bigger. So we noted that November was another liquidation month, and and that's what we're sitting here wondering is when will the liquidation stop, and, and we can't even slow down yet or begin to until we get into the spring of the year. So unfortunately, that keeps a lot of products still coming to us right now, but we know every single day that we slaughter more product on the front end, it's that much less available in the back end. That's the thing. Those back-end supplies continue to dwindle. Chris, looking at live cattle futures on the board here, we've got that April at 162. Summer months, a little bit lower. Do you think the trade is starting to, or it has priced in the expected decline in uh, in total cow numbers? 
it's it's interesting to say. I I really don't know because we could just as easily see 170s as we could the 160s or 150s for that matter. So I'm not real sure. I think the best way to look at it is we know we're going to have price fluctuation. Try to figure out how much of the risk you want the market to assume versus how much you're willing to assume on it, and then make your best marketing projections based upon the information that we have. With premiums available in the futures market, we know that marketing can be done at higher levels today than what it can be in the future. So there's not a lot of reason to not go in there and manage your risk either through put options or a put option strategy of some kind to make sure that you solidify some of this. Because the, one of the components you highlighted in your last shoot in the Bull Newsletter, Chris, was that last week definitely saw higher prices for fat cattle. It also saw higher input prices. That risk level continues to rise as well. For folks locking in some of these high-dollar feeders right now, how are you managing that feed input cost risk out into 23? It's tough, but it has to be with options right now because we just don't know. In, in the spring, we could change, and sometime in the late winter here, we could get a change in South American aspects that would improve them, or we get into the April-May uh, time frame here in the U.S., and it improves, and we could see the, the corn markets plummet. We've seen it many times before, not to say that it's going to, but clearly we have that objective in it. So I think options are the way to manage the risk going forward in the corn market. We've already had a 50-cent rally in the market coming off the lows over the last several weeks. So it's starting to get crunch time, and here we're, we're approaching closer to $7 a bushel now than we are 6 in the corn. We certainly are, Chris. For, for folks who are watching those calves coming out there, spring calvers, they're thinking about this fall preparation. Any advice long-term for folks here in the cattle market dealing with these, uh, these conflicting issues here in the markets? Well, I think if we look at the general aspect of it, we, we saw in the 2012 through 2014 time frame, we saw packing capacity shrink and we saw the numbers grow. We fast forward to today and we've seen packing capacity increase significantly and the herd size shrink. We have to believe that at some point in time, the packer is going to have to come out there and be bidding higher for inventory to make sure it comes into his plant because they need those plants still to run at 100% to be profitable. They certainly do, Chris. And when I hear things like the industry is looking at decreased numbers and steady demand, that's the kind of story that can get that managed money investor into a market. Are we seeing those big hedge funds move into the cattle trade? Absolutely we are, specifically in the fat cattle market where we saw open interest now over 300000 We saw a big increase last week, primarily in the February contract, which I think is a little strange because we already know those cattle are placed, but looking out into the June, August, and October, those cattle have not even been close to being placed yet, and that's where we're really in question. Are we going to bid up for those feeder cattle to go into those markets there, or are we not? And could we be void of inventory when we get into that June, August time frame? Chris, any shocks you're expecting this week, or should it be a fairly quiet week of trade? I'm going to assume that because of the low volume that's going to trade in there, volatility can be high. We've already seen a, a, a $1.5 range in the feeder market. It hasn't been open an hour yet, so I think volatility is what to watch out for. All right, folks, keep your head on a swivel today. We've been talking with Chris Swift of the Swift Trading Company. And, Chris, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mike. Folks, stick around. We're going to look at the impact of the weather longer term with John Baranek of DTN Weather here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Is your bathroom looking old and worn out? Want to update it, but you don't know where to start? 
Then let BCI Bath & Shower show you how to turn that old bath into an aisle of beauty and functionality. Our residential bathroom solutions provide the best value on the market, and our customer service is second to none. Our cost-effective BCI Bath & Shower family of products has what you need. Remodeling our bathroom was a big decision for us. They didn't make a mess out of our house at all. And at the end of the day, we had a beautiful new bathroom. And it was a great experience the whole way through. We have the best monthly payment programs in the industry, with payments as low as $68 per month, or no interest, no payments for 18 months. For a limited time, be one of the first 100 callers who schedule a free in-home consultation and receive $500 off. Call 800-721-9985 for a free no-obligation price quote. That's 800-721-9985. Factory trained and certified installers made in the USA and discounts for seniors and military. BCI Bath & Shower, the leader in affordable bathroom products. That's 800-721-9985. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. Eleven million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us today for AOA. We are going to talk weather next with our friend John Baranek of DTN. Of course, a lot of our listeners were impacted by the severe weather this past week. We had snow, we had high winds, and we had bone-chilling colds. But as this next week starts to roll forward, it looks like that air is moving off our shores. John Baranek, thanks for joining us today. And is the cold front pushing away? Yes, we're finally seeing that arm of the polar vortex that uh, visited over the last week here really push off uh, into the northeast. And so all the cold air is going to go with it. Uh, in its place, we've got this ridge that actually was building up over the weekend in the west and some nice warm temperatures out there. I've now started to spread their way eastward. Uh, it's definitely getting warm in the plains here today. I mean, Denver's already at 45 here early this morning. Um, and, uh, you know, temperatures coming off the Rockies there with, with winds coming off the Rockies uh, really warms up pretty quickly. And so we'll see that uh, spreading its way eastward over the next few days. That is good news. I've got to imagine for a lot of folks who have been fighting gelled up diesel and frozen livestock, the warm up is going to be nice. You mentioned 45 in Denver. John, give us some impact. How widespread is this warm up going to be and just how warm could it be here on uh, Tuesday? Yeah, it's really going to warm up everywhere. Um, not here, not today everywhere we still got that colder air out in the east coast and it'll be pushing its way off but you know temperatures uh kind of right up next to the rockies you get you get uh winds that just kind of downslope off of the mountains and as as the cold air or as the air sinks it actually warms up you don't really think of that too much but uh that's that's how um that's how it works and so when you get winds coming off the mountains there they call them chinook winds or the, depending on where you are they call them something different santa anna's out in california but they're breezy and they're warm and uh temperatures here i think denver is is slated to get up into the 60s i think we've seen 60s uh forecasts all the way up into like the black hills of south dakota and anywhere really where you can get some of those uh southwest winds to to, to come off the mountains 
You know, John, I'm curious. We did see some snow, saw several inches across a lot of this part of the country. A warm-up like this, is it going to be short-lived enough that we're not going to have to worry about any flash flood melt events? Well, I, I'm a little bit of concerned about that. Um, you know, it's not like we're we're bringing springtime air in across the entire country. Um, but, uh, you know, it's going to be a significant warm-up here for a lot of folks. And we've got some pretty significant snowpack across the Dakotas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, where we could see some pretty decent melting and where the um, really cold Arctic air has been settling in for a while, there's plenty of ice out on those rivers. And if we started to get a, a bunch of melting, we could uh, be talking about some ice jams on, on some rivers too. So flooding could be a concern here over the next week. All right, John, with this ridge moving across, carrying these warmer weathers, is, uh, warmer weather, is there potential for snowfall rain events as this thing moves through? Yeah, so we, we've kind of gone into uh, a somewhat more active pattern. You know, that the ridge that I talked about kind of spreading from the west, spreading through the country is going to park itself on the kind of the east coast here later this week. And in its place, uh, there's, there's actually a really big uh, storm system, trough, whatever you want to call it out in the North Pacific. And it's going to keep sending pieces of energy into our country here uh, over the next couple of weeks, um, trying to really push that ridge out of the way. It's not going to succeed, but... We're going to have several storm systems moving through. The West is going to get it the worst. Uh, the, the storms will really have no problem getting in there, and they'll be strong as they do so. Um, you may hear, hear uh, some talk about uh, atmospheric river events going through. Um, but once they get into the plains and into the Midwest, um, that ridge will kind of tamp them down a bit. So um, east of the Rockies, we'll end up with some areas of showers, um, even some thunderstorms being possible uh, moving through over the course of the week. Um, a little bit of snow on some of the backside of these systems, because while it'll still be warm, it'll be still cold enough for snow. Unfortunately, we're kind of getting into the dead of winter where that's still a factor. So um, uh, we'll, we will get some snow out of it as well. But, uh, you know, it's going to be kind of an active pattern here for at least this week and probably next week as well. John, it's interesting. You highlighted that, quote, atmospheric river that's going to be pushing itself onto the east coast of this country. Now, the east coast, excuse me, west coast, California, of course, the high desert, uh, Rocky Mountain Range, that region has been pummeled by drought for 10 plus years in some of those areas. And of course, that's shaping water policy on a national level. Is this atmospheric river going to provide them some drought relief? Are they going to build up those snowpacks in the Sierra Nevadas? Definitely. And so we've had some actually pretty decent snowfall um, across uh, some of those major uh, mountain ranges, the Sierras in California, uh, the coastal range there in, um, uh, in Oregon and, um, and uh, Washington, even the Northern Rockies have gotten above normal snowfall uh, so far this year. And, you know, this week is really going to add to it. Uh, even today, as we're talking, there's a, a really good, um, I don't know, slug, I guess, of moisture going through the Central Valley of California uh, and then up into the Rockies. of all sorts of winter weather advisories uh, for the mountain regions. So we're really building a snowpack this week. So, um, you know, it takes a lot uh, to really eliminate the drought, especially in those western states where even, you know, even getting, uh, I mean, this is their, their uh, precipitation heavy time of year. You know, most of the country east of the Rockies, it's, it's during the spring and summer. But in the West, it's actually in the wintertime. So this is kind of normal for them to get these kinds of events. Um, but it's good to see that uh, for those folks out there that they're actually getting it because over the last couple of years, they just really haven't. You know, they certainly haven't, John, and my head goes to over the last couple of years. Of course, we've been grappling with the impacts of La Nina down there in the Southern Pacific. Given the switch, it feels to me as a layman, like we've had in the past month, it feels like the weather has changed a lot. Is this indication that La Nina is continuing to fade, or am I reading too much into uh, weather, regular weather? Well, you know, there, there are some things going on, and La Nina is going away. We're seeing a lot of, of warmer water beneath the surface in the Pacific Ocean kind of start to rise towards the surface. And so we're slowly eroding La Nina here. Um, over the next few weeks, it should be gone, honestly. Uh, by the time we hit the, the beginning of February, I wouldn't be surprised if we were into a, a neutral status in terms of uh, that ENSO, the El Nino or La Nina there in the Pacific Ocean. However, um, it really takes a lot of time for the atmosphere to respond to everything to, to kind of get this in motion. So honestly, this is just kind of a hiccup in the La Nina pattern. 
that we're seeing. So it is going away, but this isn't the first vestiges of that. We'll have to wait till probably uh, March or April for that to occur. Okay, John, and I'm glad you brought that up. So as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, La Nina fading into the background by the time we get to planting season, but we at planting season in the U.S. shouldn't notice too much of a change. It will effectively be as though La Nina is still impacting our weather. Is that right? Unfortunately, it will, especially for those in the uh, southwestern plains there with, or anybody really that has winter wheat um, east of the Rockies. Uh, we're going to still have some dryness concerns uh, going into uh, going into spring. And we don't really see the that influence really fading until uh, maybe April, maybe sometime in April, but probably not until May or even June. All right. We'll continue to keep an eye on that La Nina moving into a neutral scenario. John, that's also going to impact weather down in South America. Bring us up to speed on Brazil. How are those soybean crops faring? Yeah. So, um, you know, most of Brazil is actually in a good spot there. Uh, they had a, a, a kind of a rough start to their wet season in central and northern Brazil. Um, it started on time, but it wasn't very intense over the last few weeks, though. It, it certainly has gotten that way. So they're they're in much better shape now. Um, that really is going to continue here uh, over the next I don't know, foreseeable future, really. And so their soybean crop, which is really getting starting, starting to fill their soybeans there. Um, are in are in really good shape. So uh, you know the record forecasts that are out there are not surprising, and and the, what we what we are likely to see that uh, come to fruition. However, southern Brazil um, has had some issues with dryness, especially this far southern state of Rio Grande do Sul, which accounts for about fifteen percent of all soybean production down there in Brazil, and uh, so it's it, it is a rather large player. That's been having some issues. It's it's kind of come along the same lines as, as Argentina, which has had dryness, drought uh, issues that you know we've been talking about the two of us here for several weeks and months. Um, and so you know while the records are likely to occur, they might not be as high as the earlier projections. So uh, we're going to keep continuing to look at uh, rainfall down there. Um, they had some pretty decent rainfall in Argentina over the weekend, uh, around an inch was, was pretty common. Um, but it's gotten dry behind that and there's not a whole lot coming until this coming weekend. Uh, we'll see another system move through, uh, Argentina and then Southern Brazil, um, this weekend into early next week. So, I mean, if they're coming at just once a, a week kind of clips in about an inch or so, you know, there's a lot of areas that get less than that. And there's also areas that get missed. So, um, you know, it's not a, an overly good pattern to be in if you're a farmer down in Argentina or far southern Brazil. No, it isn't. We'll continue to watch that as this growing season develops down there in South America. And we'll get updates from our friend John Baranek at DTN Weather. John, thanks for joining us today. Always great to talk to you, Mike, and uh, we'll see you next year. <laughs> that is true. Thank you, sir. And folks, stick around. We're going to keep talking with experts from DTN. Todd Neely will be joining us next with a look at the legal cases around dicamba and chlorpiferose. Stay with us for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is Ernie Johnson, Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles, and college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD, and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill, or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. You're listening to AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Risto with this market update. 
A hint of optimism was seen this morning on Wall Street in what should be a thinner holiday trading environment, although some of that optimism has waned as U.S. trade desks began to open. Overnight traders were reacting to an optimism that China will be rebounding from its current COVID outbreak sooner rather than later, providing a boost for the global economy as well as for demand for commodities. The VIX is trading near 22 this morning, while the dollar index has pulled back a bit. Yields on 10-year treasuries are trading at a nearly five-week high at 3.82%, while yields on two-year treasuries are trading near 4.37%. That's as the wide inversion continues to narrow. Crude oil prices have firmed to fresh three-week highs on the China optimism, and that's also providing a little underlying support to the grain and oil seed markets this morning. Some showers were again seen over Argentina over the weekend, although stress is still expected to expand to two-thirds of the grain belt once again. Meanwhile, harvest of a very big crop has begun in Brazil, which will now dominate the global soybean export market. USDA has reported this morning a new sale of U.S. corn to Japan, but only 7,500 metric tons was for 22-23 with the balance of 170,000 metric tons for the 23-24 crop year. Now in China, they have downgraded that COVID-19 virus from a Category A infectious disease to a Category B disease effective January 8th, while stating that it will also remove all inbound travel restrictions into the country that are related to COVID. Now these are considered to be the final steps necessary to move past the pandemic toward an open economy after essentially being closed for the past three years. China's economy still has significant obstacles in front of it as it battles the current outbreak that is rapidly spreading through the country, but we're also seeing some positive signs that the Chinese people are anxious to rebound from the current outbreak. And there is a very real possibility that we should see a rebound by the second quarter of 2023. This is AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We certainly appreciate you joining us today. Over this past year, we have seen crop protection tools come under fire from a lot of different parts of the, uh, the executive branch, and we've seen ag groups work to push back on those. Two cases are currently pending in the court system right now about crucial crop protection chemicals for a number of growers. Notably, there's a case in the D.C. Circuit Court surrounding dicamba. Then there's a separate case making its way through the courts around chlorpiferose. We're going to talk with Todd Neely. He's a DTN staff report. He has been covering these two cases as they move forward. And Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, good to be here, Mike. Thanks. You know, let's start with this dicamba case. As I understand it, Todd, this whole case centers around whether or not some rules that were changed back in March are legal. Is that how things are, are, are standing right now? Yeah, Mike, you know, it's interesting. We have um, two separate lawsuits in this situation. Uh, back in November of 2020, uh, a number of ag groups had sued the EPA in the D.C. Circuit, actually the D.C. District of Columbia uh, Court, and a lot of it was centered on, uh, you know, whether dicamba labels that were changed at the time were too restrictive. Um, you know, there was concern that uh, those restrictions were hampering cotton and soybean grower, growers' ability uh, to control herbicide-resistant weeds. Um, and they established a cutoff date, like a national cutoff date for soybeans of June 30th and July 30th for cotton. Uh, that case has since been put on a stay uh, 
uh, we have now we have these groups that have gone to the D.C. Uh, the Court of Appeals in D.C. Um, they're wanting the court to, to look at whether uh, some of the things that EPA has done um, are abiding by federal law. Uh, one of the things we saw um, on March 15th of 2022, EPA had announced uh, some approved label amendments um, to restrict over-the-top dicamba use in Iowa and Minnesota uh, in two specific states. And so, um, you know, the American Soybean Association, plain cotton growers uh, decided to go ahead and challenge that. And the one thing that came up is, uh, you know, these these restrictions that were put in place in March were considered to be fairly unusual uh, when it comes to what EPA does. Um, and now states, because of that, now states uh, that want to further restrict dicamba that may be above and beyond what the EPA is doing uh, would have to make their own state rulemaking um, or they would have to create what federal labor requirements with the EPA and, and the companies that, that make the products. Um, it's a little complicated, but where we're at now, we had oral arguments uh, earlier this month um, in the Circuit Court of Appeals uh, on this particular issue and that's dealing with something more broad, EPA's authority to be able to do what they've done. And then once this case is resolved, we will go back to the lawsuit uh, potentially in November of 2020. Uh, that lawsuit would become active again. And so it's a series of things that are going on. Okay. All right. That is complicated, Todd. Let me see if I understand the situation. We had that case filed in 2020, went to court. The the EPA put those restrictions on the over-the-top summer dates. Those have been stayed. They're now sitting to the side. The court has to answer the question, can EPA issue state-by-state -state labels under the law? That's what's being decided now. Then it will go back to decide that initial question. And Todd, this has been going on for two, almost three years now. Do you have, yeah. does the, is there an expected date when this thing could resolve? It's really difficult to say, Mike. I know that, you know, a lot of these things take some time to go through the court and we're dealing uh, on the appellate side of this, we're dealing with a broader question. Um, you know, when you look at the DC circuit court of appeals, it is the, it's the next step from the Supreme court. It's considered basically the second highest court in the land. Um, and so there's the potential for this this type of thing to go to the Supreme Court at some point. Um, I don't know that that's going to actually happen, but I do think that we could see. Um, you know, we've got we've got the growing season coming up, and so we could see action from the court if it's mindful enough on this particular issue uh, come spring. Um, you know, whether that's soon enough, I I don't know entirely. But it definitely, you know, the wheels of justice tend to go rather slow. But on this particular issue, I think that considering that we have, you know, kept timelines for farmers and when they can use these products and so on, I, I would suspect the court would be aware of that. Okay, might be moving with haste. Do folks stay tuned, pay attention to this issue. We could see some substantial changes into how dicamba gets used on farms across the country. And Todd, that's what we're seeing take place with chlorpiferos. Earlier this year, as I understand it, EPA effectively banned the legal use of chlorpiferos on U.S. farmers. That's now being fought. How does that case proceeding? Well, it's interesting, Mike, because the one thing that we learned is that there is a company uh, Guardia is what it's called. Um, they had appealed to the EPA saying that we would like to go ahead and continue to sell chlorpyrifos uh, based on a December 2020 action that the agency took. And back then, uh, EPA had found that there were 11 what they call high benefit and low risk crop uses for the for the chemical. Um, and so this company had had gone ahead. Um, and notified the EPA that they wanted to, um, you know, with those narrow uses, they wanted to continue to sell the product. Um, now, as we stand now, Garda is the only company that's still out there trying to sell chlorpyrifos. Um, all the other companies involved have basically pulled their registrations. And so this particular case might be sort of interesting because uh, it's, it, I guess in a way it appears as kind of a last gasp, you know, it's, uh, we're at a point where uh, farmers have a lot of challenges in, in dealing with pests and on crops, and so uh, there are, there's a lot of there's a lot of concern out there that the, the total loss of chlorpyrifos could be very devastating to to those battles that farmers face. And so, really, this is the last kind of the last hurrah because the EPA has made it clear that uh, you know they're just going to pull the registration, and most of the registrants out there who have to sell these chemicals have have agreed, except for one. 
Okay, so as I understand it, then best case scenario for chlorpyrifos, chlor chlorpyrifos. I wish I were a science guy. The best case <laughs> scenario is that the EPA sides with the the Garda Chemical, the company that has uh, has sought for yeah. relief on these eleven high benefit, low risk crop solutions, and then they would be the only company, right? Then selling chlorpyrifos in the countryside. Is that how it would work if it goes mm -hmm. the way they're hoping? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. You know, and that's the thing. We're talking just about eleven what they call high benefit uses, and so. Clearly, that doesn't cover everything that's out there and, and all the potential, um, you know, the potential loss of the use of that chemical. And so uh, it would be a very narrow, very narrow, narrow scope in that regard. Now, the court could conceivably require EPA at some point to go back and reconsider this broader issue about pulling the registration. Now, I don't know that, that this particular case, uh, which is in the Court of Appeals in the Eighth Circuit in St. Louis, I, I don't know that that would have that sort of an effect. But I think as it's working through the appellate courts, it again, it has the potential as a possible Supreme Court case down the road. Now, whether it would go that far, obviously, uh, the Supreme Court doesn't take many of these cases. I think there's 80 out of maybe 8,000 cases that they have requested each year that they take. And so um, the long game, I think, for, for the companies that are still out there and the ag groups that are out there still fighting this is the hope that EPA will be forced to go back and reconsider chlorpyrifos altogether. All right. Well, that battle will continue. Of course, the farmers across the country have gotten used to these crop protection tools. They've utilized them in their operations, and at least in the case yeah. of chlorpyrifos, could be gone for good. Todd, while we've got you on the line here, I you wrote an article just before Christmas talking about some additional tests the EPA has been uh, sued in order to try and provide, and this is on endocrine disruptor chemicals. Can you tell us a little bit about what this lawsuit is alleging? Yeah, you know, uh, EPA was was required by a law that was passed back in the 1990s um, to go back and, and take a look at what chemicals out there might have those types of qualities that, that, that are so-called endocrine disruptors. And basically what that is, is, uh, you know, when we're talking about the human health, we're talking about um, a lot of different types of systems in our body. It's really complicated. But the one the one thing that I think that we've we've learned from that particular case that was just filed is that EPA was required to go back and, and not only create a test, but then to go back through a lot of the chemicals that they've approved and see what chemicals out there might be uh, causing these types of disruptions in the, in the human body. And so uh, it's a very broad, uh, broad lawsuit that, that we wrote about here before Christmas, but it does have the potential uh, to, make, to make EPA go back and, and do what it was supposed to do. You know, we're already seeing through EPA, uh, they're going back and looking at a lot of ag chemicals as it relates to the Endangered Species Act. And so this particular lawsuit is very similar to that and the fact that EPA was supposed to be following a law that was passed by Congress in the 90s, and, and it really hasn't. It's been dragging its feet. And so um, not sure where that's going to go either, but it certainly uh, could include a broad list of chemicals. That's interesting, Todd. Now, I did notice that lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for Northern California. Was that a strategic choice on the half, uh, behalf of the folks filing this suit? Yeah, there's no doubt about it, Mike. You know, when you look at the Northern District of California, there have been a lot of uh, ag-related cases filed in that district because there's been a lot of favorable rulings uh, that the environmental groups have, have received from the Northern District in California. And yeah, there's no accident where these are where these are filed, and usually uh, Northern California has been one of those places. You know, you can look also at the Ninth Circuit Court, um, the Peels Court out out west too, is another place where these often go. Uh, but yeah, we've seen a lot coming from that Northern District of California over the years, and so you know, when you look at the scheme of things and the way um, these act lawsuits have gone, that's the place to go if you're an environmental group. It is indeed. It certainly sounds like EPA is going to have more pressure on the crop protection oversight beat. And folks, stay tuned. Todd Neely covers these issues for DTN. You can follow him there. And Todd, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We're going to take a look across the Pacific to what developed in China just after the Christmas holiday. Stay here for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Megan Woolley. She's Senior Director of Stewardship at CHS, and she serves as the president of the CHS Foundation. We're going to talk about the work the foundation does. Megan, what areas of giving does the foundation focus on? So we focus on three main areas, cooperative education, leadership programs, and university partnerships. And we think of our support on a continuum. So reaching the future of ag at all ages, we start with elementary school youth through partnerships with national ag in the classroom and state cooperative camps. We reach middle and high school students through 4-H and FFA. And then once students are in college, we're supporting them through scholarships and curriculum at 25 different partner colleges and universities. Wow, Megan, I understand this is the first year for the foundation to be supporting grants to teachers. Can you tell us why that's an important issue? It is. Ag teacher recruitment and retention has been a major focus for the CHS Foundation for several years through our partnership with the National Teach Ag Campaign. And we recognize that ag teachers are often the first introduction most students have to agriculture and thus the important roles that these teachers can play in a student's life. So typically we've supported teachers through state and national partnerships but with it being our 75th anniversary this year, we wanted to try something a little bit different. And I'm really excited to share that we're awarding $75,000 directly to teachers. So we are really excited about the opportunity to support teachers directly in all the great work that they do. That is fantastic. Folks, we've been talking with Megan Woolley. She's the Senior Director of Stewardship at CHS and serves as President of the CHS Foundation. Megan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Mike. And thanks to you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership by visiting cooperativeownership.com. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. And each month, we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month. And you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.
This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here for AOA. You know, as a lot of us here in this country are celebrating the holiday season, the Christmas holiday heading into New Year's, of course, we're seeing folks around the world celebrate different things. And Sunday, December 25th, wasn't as important a date in China as it was in the U.S., so the Chinese held a hugely important foreign minister, excuse me, foreign affairs symposium on Sunday, on Christmas Day, and there were several speakers from the Chinese executive branch who spoke. Notably, President Xi Jinping addressed the crowd. We'll talk about that here in just a second, but also we heard from Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi, and there has been a lot of concern in the global geopolitical community, I suppose, about what China's future will look like. Will they take a page from Russia's playbook and maybe look over the next couple of years to bring Taiwan back into the fold, or will they be looking to stay a part of the global network? And the comments from uh, Wang Yi, Chinese foreign minister, were that they want to stay a part of the global trading scenario. They said that President Xi will be making more trips around to other countries here in this next year. Now that COVID-19 protocols have been rolled back in China, they're going to increase strategic communications with Europe. And Wang Yi also noted that they are concerned about the cuts that America and other European countries are putting on chip access, the ability of China to import high-end computer chips and their designs from developed countries, notably the U.S., which has banned it, uh, certain specific types of chips, and similar conversations are underway over in the U.K. It does appear as though China is noticing that and they're working to re-engage in the international community. However, at that same conference, President Xi Jinping also spoke, and he took a little bit of a different tack. They're saying they're not going to stand for bullying, which is what the Chinese call the cutbacks on uh, ability to access American chips. And they said specifically, Xi Jinping said that China needs to, quote, accelerate its efforts to achieve self-reliance in agriculture technology. This is an issue that I think grew in importance in China over this past year as they sustained that massive drought over some key rice production regions. He said that China needs to identify seed development, they need to redevelop core equipment, and they need to focus on different ways the state can support agriculture. He noted that in 2020, the Chinese seed industry was the weak link in the food chain, and they need to make better use of science and technology to achieve a turnaround. This is big news because China has been one of those countries that has been slow to recognize the impact and uh, safety of genetically modified organisms. To hear the leader of China say, we're going to look hard at technology, a lot of folks in the industry are reading as indication that the Chinese government is going to fund, perhaps, or partner with more folks developing that genetic technology. So even though China may be re-engaging here over the next couple of years as ag producers, we need to watch what they're doing on the ground because their purchases of both soybeans, corn, and beef in this past year have certainly helped provide some security to U.S. bottom lines. Looking out at the issues we're grappling with across the ag industry, John Baranek was on earlier in the show. He mentioned that this cold wave is starting to fade. However, there are going to be some ramifications we'll be grappling with as an industry, well, and an economy for a couple of weeks to come, notably natural gas supplies. A lot of us can think back to that February 2020 cold wave that moved all the way down into South Texas. That shut in natural gas production across the Permian Basin down there for quite some time. Josh Linville was highlighting the risks associated with that for the fertilizer market if this cold snap were to be as bad as that one back in February. The good news is it doesn't seem to be. The industry in Texas did learn a lot from that cold wave back down in uh, 2020. They were more prepared this year. However, 
when the temps get below freezing in places where natural gas gets pumped, it definitely impacts the efficacy of those wells. And that's certainly true with this case. Output has dropped down to 84.2 billion cubic feet. That was just before Christmas, on to Christmas Eve rather, as that cold wave was being most felt across Texas. That 84.2 billion was true for Christmas Eve. It was true again for Christmas Day. Monday, temperatures started to improve and some production is returning across the Permian Basin. However, market watchers expect U.S. natural gas supplies to still be about 10% short, expect to see some pipeline disruptions possible as the smaller amount of gas gets forced through this nationwide pumping system. So you might see some, some volatility in the coming days on natural gas availability. However, the good news is that industry is pushing back. We are seeing those, uh, those declines be eliminated. Oh, we've also got some other global news being reported. Of course, this week between Christmas and New Year's tends to be a slow week. Many, many folks, professionals are out of their offices. They're, they're home with their holidays. They're taking this week to travel. However, we still get slated reports. Most of them are still coming out, including... The report on the U.S. trade deficit. This was a topic that garnered a lot of conversation back in 2016. We talked a lot about the large trade deficit, which is the measure of how much Americans buy from foreign countries versus how much we sell to foreign countries. Specifically, we've been watching that trade deficit with China over the past couple of years. And what we found is that Americans tend to buy more from China than we sell to them, which makes sense. We've got more disposable income than the average Chinese have, but we've been selling lots of grain. And importantly, in uh, November, the trade deficit narrowed to the smallest it has been since December 2020, which was largely a COVID fluke. It was down 15.6% month to month. That means Americans were buying fewer goods from overseas. Economists interpreting this data say what Americans have been doing instead is cooling off their Amazon accounts and instead going out and purchasing services. They've been going out to eat. They've been going out to get their haircut. Most of the U.S. economy traditionally runs on the service sector, and that was upended through COVID as we all were, many Americans were locked into their homes and they could only buy stuff instead of things. Now we're transitioning back to buying things and the hope, or excuse me, back to buying services. And the hope is that as that transition continues, it will get easier to get things up and down. These supply chains will free up some capacity. Folks, stay tuned. Tomorrow, we're going to talk markets with Darren Newsom. The soybeans are on fire today. He'll give us an update on that. And we're also going to check in with Michael Dykes, president and CEO of the International Dairy Food Association, about some legislative priorities in 2022. Tune in tomorrow to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with Geeks On Site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. 
If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.